Well, good morning. Hey, good morning. It's Walter Spires. I'm glad to be with you. It is 9.30 sharp and time for us to get started. Excited to be here with you and always excited to be able to teach the Word of God. We're continuing this series that started last time called Living Proof. Living Proof. It's going to be a real challenge for us as Christians. It's subtitled, A Primer for Christians. A Primer. And I talked last time about that word. Primer looks like primer. Most people are going to always call it primer. But what's a primer? A primer is an educational tool, like a book. They called them primers or primers back in the old days when they'd give kids their books for school. Primer for math, for uh, English, things like that. This is going to. This is a primer for the Word of God for Christians in such a time as this, as we every day or one day closer to the rapture of the church, us as believers out of this world. And we look forward to that. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we have to take people with us. And to do so, we need to make sure that we understand all the precepts, all the principles, those things, the fundamentals and basics. And that's some of what we're going through. So let me pray us in and we'll get started today. Father God, thank you for your word. Your word is the truth, the whole truth and the only truth that we have as Christians for our own lives, and then to obey Jesus' command to go and make disciples of other nations. Take the word out. Help people understand that Jesus Christ is the only way, the way, the truth, and the life. It said in his own words, help us to make sure that we understand what that means and that we have, have appropriated it, we've received it, believed it, and that we know with certainty, as we're going to study today, that we are truly born again, as Jesus said to Nicodemus. So Holy Spirit, help us. Guide us. Guide me in, in my uh, teaching this morning and open the ears and the hearts and minds of those who would receive this word, even to those who need Jesus Christ as, Jesus Christ as Savior, that they would become born again even today. Lord, let it be for Christ's sake. Amen. Okay, well, this morning, part two of this message is entitled, The Jesus Mandate. The Jesus Mandate. And what does that mean? Well, I'm going to read it to you in just a minute. But before we do that, I want to make sure we uh, review briefly last time. We usually do that. I won't take but a few minutes. But last time we looked at the fact that Jesus asks hard, difficult questions. Hard, difficult questions. And these were of his disciples, the 12 that were with him, and then us. And by the way, you know, those 12 disciples were chosen at different times. And so at this point in time, quite frankly, I don't remember how many were with him. Could have been all 12, but I don't recall that. It's early in his ministry. They probably weren't all there at that time. But that's not important. What's important is who was with him. He was teaching them. And he asked hard questions. And we looked at three questions. The first one was, you know, who do you say that I am? You know, people were saying that he was John the Baptist, because he'd ask first, who do others say that I am? That John the Baptist, Elijah come back, all these different prophets, because everybody considered Jesus a prophet, even if they didn't consider him Messiah, which most didn't at that time. Who do you say that I am? And so it's important for us to understand that we know who Jesus is, and that we're able to articulate to ourselves and then to others who we know that he is, who we know that he is. And the second question was, kind of a, um, a bit of a rebuke. He said, well, look, why do you call me Lord, Lord, 
and then you don't do the things that I tell you to do. And he was speaking this to the people. Why do you call me Lord or Rabbi, teacher, and yet you don't do what I, what I have told you to do? I've given you these instructions. I've given you these commands. And we're going to get into some of those as we proceed on through this series. But that was a great question for us today. Why do you call him Lord? Why do you say Jesus is my Lord and Savior? And yet you don't do what he says to do. Your life looks nothing like what he said it should look like. We'll get into that next week. And then finally, he asked this one specifically to Peter, this question, hardest question of all, in front of all the other disciples that were there, uh, because this was after the resurrection. So we know that 11 were there. Judas was... Uh, had hung himself by that time. He said, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And he asked him three times. And I gave you that story and the differences in the words, that kind of thing. So be mindful that Jesus is not just asking Peter, who had denied him and been restored, that we need to ask ourselves, because the Lord God through the Holy Spirit would ask us, do you love me? Do you love me? And is there evidence that you do? And we're going to look into the evidences next time. But this time, today, we're going to look at what I call this mandate. Jesus gave a mandate in John 3, and I'm going to read part of that to you. And in it, it contains probably the most unusual statement that Jesus ever made. And let let me give you a little background here, and we will get started in John 3, and I'm going to read 1 through 21 and focus on just a couple verses today. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He and the disciples are in Jerusalem. He's there for the Passover. He had thrown people out of the temple. It was the first time he cleared the temple. He did so later, you know, before his crucifixion. And so he was already beginning to show himself as someone who was special and different. And he said those odd words just before John 3 and John 2. He said, you know, tear this temple down and I'll raise it back up in three days. And they thought he was nuts. And, of course, he was talking about his body, the temple, his resurrection on the third day. But they had no idea, and, of course, they couldn't. They weren't looking into the future. He was prophetically laying out a word of what was going to happen so that when it did, when he was resurrected on that Sunday morning, then they might think back and say, whoa, now I get it. And so many of them did. So that's what's going on. But in Jerusalem, he's in Jerusalem. They, they sit outside of Jerusalem. And that last week, often in Bethany, a little town not too far outside of Jerusalem. Uh, but they were out there somewhere. And, and then the strangest thing happened. And I'm going to start reading in John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees were that ruling religious tribe, tribe ruling religious group or sect of leaders over the Jews, and one of them, one of the most powerful of all of them, was a man called Nicodemus. So now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He's called here by John a ruler of the Jews, a ruler of the Jews. So that gives you his power, position, authority. And he came to Jesus by night, and that's the key. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, and this is a ruler of the Jews, a very learned man in the law, calling Jesus rabbi, teacher. That's what that means. We know that you've come from God. And that's interesting, isn't it? 
He walks up and he says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, as a teacher, not as Messiah, not as anything other than that. Although Nicodemus was apparently troubled and confused because he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. Now, at night, no one would see him at night. He would not be seen or caught, if you will, by the other Pharisees. And so Nicodemus slips off in the night. Because he's obviously troubled. Otherwise, why would he come? And that's important because when we get into this very, very strange response that Jesus gives, it's going to give us a little bit of insight into it. More veiled than obvious, but let's keep going. Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs, the miracles that you do unless God is with him. God is with him. The Jews, and I've talked to you on this uh, a number of times before, and Jesus made this comment uh, to the Pharisees and the Jews that always crying out for signs, for signs. The Jews were always looking for signs. The Jews were always looking for signs. That's just kind of how they were um, uh, wired, if you will. They, they were it was based on works and, and a wrong thinking, and God never taught them that through the Old Testament. Yet the law, as it had been given, had been so... Uh, enhanced, engrossed, made even made so ridiculous, no one could possibly obey them or keep the law, including the Pharisees, by the way, and the Sadducees. They didn't either, but they could hold the other people accountable for that and do whatever they wanted to under the law in terms of punishments. But they're always looking for signs, signs and wonders and miracles. And so now they have this man who's come through. He's doing all these miracles, and they think about because that really hadn't been done since Elijah perhaps Elijah, uh, Elisha, and you know, the times of, of really powerful prophets. Moses, of course, had done those. But these were the most powerful men of God, the prophets preceding Jesus. And now this new prophet, if you will, this new amazing man whom God is with, has come in their presence doing all these signs. And so Nicodemus is troubled. He is bothered by that. And so he said, Rabbi, I'm going to repeat this because I'm going to read on into the verse and the statement of Jesus now as we get into his words that are so odd and unusual. Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now here's the interesting thing. And here is the mandate. Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God unless one is born again. That's the very first use of that phrase, born again. What's interesting, if you read it and you read those together as I did, you think, well, Nicodemus didn't ask a question. And Jesus gave this what appears to be a very strange answer to a question that was never asked. Read it for yourself. We know that no one can do the signs unless God is with him. There's no question in that. It's a statement that we're amazed at you because of what you do. These signs and miracles, these are amazing things. And we know that God must be with you for that. And then Jesus answers with this very peculiar word, but it's a mandate. Because he says, truly, truly. And when you say truly, truly or in the Old Testament, I mean in the uh, King James Version, it's verily, verily. It's a very emphatic statement that this is the truth. Verily, verily. Truly, truly. Really. Really, I mean this, unless you are born again, 
you will not see the kingdom of God. What in the world does that mean? And that's exactly what Nicodemus said. Nicodemus is puzzled now because he's been given a strange thing of being born again, something about which he didn't inquire at all. And so he's trying to frame this all in his mind. He just made an observation that, that Jesus was this amazing rabbi teacher doing miracles, and they were, they were puzzled by that. They were confused. They wanted to know more. At least Nicodemus did. So Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born, you know, born again when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So now Jesus takes that word, that expression born again, and begins to define what it means for us. Born again. Nicodemus has clearly asked the same question we would. How in the world can someone be born again, be born a second time? You can't go back up in your mother's womb and come back out. That's what we think of, right? A born again, born a second time. So the birth process is what he's thinking about, and that's why it's important to understand, and I believe this is the correct translation. Now, there are others who disagree that Jesus says when you're born of water and you're born of spirit, unless those things happen, and obviously the born of water does, because when we were born, it's always been said, it is today, it was in generations past, that our mothers had carried babies around in their water, and when their water breaks, it's time to go to the hospital. You know, we know that's amniotic fluid, uh, but that's the expression that's always been used. And so born of water is what Jesus said, born of flesh. We're born of flesh. You're born from your mother. That's born of water. Some will argue it's baptism, and some will argue it's other things, but I think it's clear and let's not make it complicated, it's clear that when you're born in the flesh, you're born. It's the first time you're born. There's an earthly birth. Because then he goes on to say, well, there's also a spiritual birth. So there's an earthly birth, physical birth, and a spiritual birth. And born of the Spirit. And we know that as Christians, and people will argue this too, different denominations, that when we were born again, we're born of the Spirit. We're born of the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit com comes into us when we were born again and received Christ. Now, people are going to argue about other baptisms of the Holy Spirit and other times the Holy Spirit comes on you. Those are absolutely described in Scripture. We're not going to discuss that. That is not the point. This was really straightforward. But Jesus, knowing all things, who is God in the flesh, who set aside some things, this deity, when he came, that's what we're told in Philippians chapter 2, the kenosis is called, where he set aside these things. But he knew Nicodemus was troubled and had questions about this because, look, all the Jews were waiting on Messiah. The Old Testament, all the way through, is replete with references to and the expectation of Messiah coming to save them, coming to save the nation. Now, ever since the fall of uh, uh, Israel, the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and then the, 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 final, the final fall of Judah and Jerusalem in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians and the destruction of the temple, they were really hoping something was going to happen. And what they wanted, and in Jesus' time, they wanted a Messiah, but they wanted a military ruler. They wanted someone to get the Romans off their backs. They hated the Romans. 
And so that's what they were looking for. And understand, after Malachi, at the end of Malachi 4, we have 400 years or so of silence where there is no prophetic word from God at all, no new word. So you go from that page in your Bible, which says the Old Testament ends, Malachi, I think it's 4, 6, or I can't remember off the top of my head right now, and then into Matthew 1, 1. There are 400 years of silence from God in terms of prophecy and revelation and speaking to the people. He had warned them and warned them and warned them. And so my point is, they'd gone generation after generation after generation with no word, with no word. The only way that it was kept was those who were the ones who'd memorized this as fathers were supposed to do, but the, the priests, the teachers, they were supposed to memorize the law and be able to pass it down to your children generation to generation. That's in that Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, that's, the way, that's the only way to survive. There were probably scrolls and things that were protected, but those weren't distributed everywhere. That's not how it worked. You have a bunch of Bibles laying around like we do. And so these people were really waiting, waiting and pleading with God, those who had remained faithful, and it was just a few, by the way. Most of these Jews had become so carnal, and this goes back hundreds of years, because that's why God ultimately let them be destroyed. It goes way, way back. They had just thrown him off for pagan gods, intermingling with other nations and that were godless or worshipped all kinds of false gods. And so fi finally God said enough. And so we go through so many generations where they're not a nation anymore. They had not been a nation, uh, not officially, since 586 B.C. And they didn't become a nation again until 1948. That's over 2,500 years, 2,600 years. No nation of Israel. And now we know the things going on will lead us toward the uh, end, the rapture of the church, and then all the hell that breaks loose, literally, as the uh, Antichrist comes into power. Getting closer. You can see it. What's going on with Israel today? Being attacked on different sides, and it's just more signs of the times. But people have been expecting it a long time, so we won't go there right now. So here's this mandate. You must be born again. You must be born again. Born of water, born of spirit. Otherwise, you will not see the kingdom of God. The Jews believed that they would all experience heaven or the kingdom of God. Why? Because of their works. Because if they were a good Jew, then they were God's chosen people, and they kept the sacrifices, and they did all these things, then they would be in the kingdom of God because of their works and their, and their faithfulness. God said, I don't want that. I want your heart. He told them. He told them in the Old Testament, I don't want your heart. You know, you know, don't rend your garments. Don't tear your garments like you're really sorry about something. Rend your hearts. Give me your hearts. That's what I want. And the same is true today. So Nicodemus now is listening to something that he never thought he would hear, but it was life-changing for him. Do not be amazed, Jesus went on to say, that I said to you, you must be born again. You must be born again. There he is. He's the same, the same strange phrase. He goes on to give some more explanation to it, but it's a little bit uh, unusual. He said, the wind blows where it wishes, and, and, and you hear it. You hear the wind, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. And so is everyone born of the Spirit. In other words, you know, God the Holy Spirit acts and moves on people in the ways that God want, wants to and does. Like the wind, we know it's there. We know God is there. We, we, don't, we haven't seen God. We haven't seen 
For us, we've not seen God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit. But we've seen the manifestations of Him, and we see the Spirit all the time in His working in our lives, in the world. I mean, we do. If you're, if you're born again in Christ, you understand that. If you're not, you don't. You have no idea. And so he's saying these unusual things. And Nicodemus says, well, again, how can these things be? How can that be? How can that be that born of the Spirit? What does that mean? And Jesus said to him, are you a teacher of Israel? In other words, he was a ruler of Israel and a teacher. These guys knew the law. They had memorized it. They knew the law better than anyone. And so Jesus is kind of admonishing him and saying, listen, you're a teacher. You're one of the guys who knows the law and teaches our people. And you don't understand these things? <laughs> I'm sure Nicodemus was really about to crawl in a hole at this point. <clears throat> Again, the words truly, truly. I mean this when I say to you, we speak of what we know, meaning Jesus and his disciples that were with him, because they'd seen it. We speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, but you don't accept our testimony. In the Jewish uh, religion and, and then that, the way it worked in the law, it, testimony it took two, two people to testify. You couldn't have one person convince one person's word against another. And so two people could testify, and then it has some credibility if you're taking something to the law or to court. Well, Jesus is saying, we've got enough. We've got enough people here, people who are testifying about what's going on, and yet you're not believing the testimony. I'm doing things that only God can do, that only God can do, and yet you don't believe it. And other people are testifying, and you still don't believe it. He said, if I told you earthly things, and you don't believe them, meaning the physical things that he's doing in terms of miracles, then if I tell you heavenly things, how are you going to believe those? I'm speaking spiritually now is what he said. I'm telling you spiritual things. You're supposed to understand this because this has always been said from, from Genesis all the way through. That God is spirit. The Holy Spirit was, has always been present. He wasn't manifested like when Jesus sent him at Pentecost. But he's always had a role there. And we know from Genesis creation that, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all present there. It, it's a mysterious trinity. And though we don't understand it, we know it and we believe it because the Bible speaks to it and we read it. And Nicodemus should have known all that. And so that's what Jesus kind of calling him out on here. Then he starts to get a little more interesting about the uh, uh, Messiahship. He says, um, no one has ascended into heaven, but he, he, capital H, meaning Jesus, who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He always called himself the Son of Man. Son of the capital S, Son of God, Son of Man, meaning the God incarnate. And then he gives us another Jewish historical analysis or analogy that Nicodemus would absolutely know. Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Now, let me give you a quick overview of that. That Again, Israel, sinful. God was angry with them. He sent snakes into the camp and... They were biting people. They were dying. They were dying by the thousands. And they cried out to Moses, who then cried out to God. And God said, okay, go get a pole. Go get a pole. A standard was a pole. And on that, put a bronze, make a bronze serpent, the image and figure of a bronze serpent. Stick it on top of that pole. Hold it up in the camp. Hold it up. And everyone who looks toward that will not die. <laughs> he raised up a standard on a pole. And if people look to that, 
they wouldn't die. It wasn't the serpent on the pole, that artificial bronze thing that was healing them. It was God. It was their faith to believe what Moses told them, that God said, if you do this, you'll live. It is the pre and I'm getting chills running up and down my spine right now. I always do with this one because Nicodemus needed to understand what Jesus is saying in the same way the Son of Man will be lifted up. And that's what Jesus said. Just as Moses lifted up that serpent for salvation and deliverance from the death, then so then even then will the Son of Man himself be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. This is the precursor to John 3.16 we're going to get to. So that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. He is, that, that's why I consider John 3 the most important chapter in the Bible. It's got more theology in it. It is so important. And it's the first time Jesus said what has to happen in order for us to see the kingdom of God or to be part of the kingdom of God as we refer to it heaven, that we would be born again. We need to be born again. So now that was John 3.15. Let's look at John 3.16 and following, and you know this verse. But I hope this context helps you understand it better. He said, For even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. That's a continuation. For God so loved the world. And this is where the love of God comes in. God is love. God does love His creation, loves the world, loves His created people, mankind. Why would he? he created us in his image? God does love us and he loves everyone. And there's a but. And I'm not going to uh, segue on that right now. There is no such thing as unconditional love. The Bible never teaches that. Never teaches that. You may think I need to stop and teach on that. Let me just simply say it's not in the word of God because the, the salvific or the saving love of God the saving grace of God, all those are conditional. They're conditional on what? That we'll receive Jesus Christ. What he said is that you believe. And that's what John 3.16 is telling us. For God so loved the world. He did. So loved the world. That little word so is so important. So important, meaning very important. It's a critical word. He was so passionate, loving about his creation. And in this, in this case, the part of it that is mankind and love the world, meaning mankind, that's when you, that's translated in the Greek, that, that word means mankind, not just world as all the physical creation, but mankind. That he gave, he gave, it's a gift, it's a gift. He did not have to do it. It's a gift. Jesus Christ is a gift. And, and for the first time, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a powerful man within the whole Jewish community, under Roman authority, of course, at that time, that he gave his what? Only begotten son. Now, I'm going to pause here because a lot of translations now leave out the word begotten, and that's a mistake. It's a mistake. The word begotten is important, I think, because it means the one and only, the one of a kind, his only son. You could That's what it does. It says only son leaves it out. But there's an emphasis, there's an emphaticism about, is that a word? It's, it's more emphatic when you say the only begotten son. doesn't mean God, he was birthed from God in that he did not exist before. Some denominations uh, teach that. 
that it's not really uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three in one, but that the, Jesus was birthed, and that begotten means to birth him. No, 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 that's not what it means. That's not what it means. Jesus always existed. He was with God before all eternity because he is God. I, you know, you just can't explain it beyond that. So I think that's what Scripture teaches, and we'll leave it at that. His only begotten Son, and that whosoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, that word believed is used so many times in the book of John and, and used five times right here in these uh, verses in John 3. And there's a verse I want to back up to for a minute. Well, I'm going to read one more before I do that. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world or judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So when people talk, talk about, well, your God is a mean, awful, judging God and sends people to hell and all that, no, he didn't want that. That wasn't his desire. He wanted to save the world, mankind, people, and the only way to do that was to send Jesus Christ to die on a cross for our sins, to be that propitiation for our sins, that sacrifice, replacing us in our sin on the cross so that we can be saved. To be held up, if you will, that pole, that serpent on a pole, Jesus held up on that cross so that we would be saved. So God didn't send Jesus to judge the world. By the way, the world had been judged. The world had already been judged. We've been judged. Genesis 3. Go back and look, Adam and Eve, from that point forward, the world is judged. When I say the world, mankind, people, men, women, we are judged. We had that sin nature and we sin and that sin needs to be cleansed and made uh, washed away and we need to be made holy and perfect and pure just like Adam and Eve were and, and the garden was and everything was before the fall of man in Genesis 3. So God, God's intention here is nothing but love. The problem is the world doesn't like this. They, don't, they hate John 14, 6 more than any verse, and you'll get criticized for this one because it sounds bigoted and words that I don't even know what they mean. But, you know, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And here's the key. No one comes to the Father. No one is redeemed. No one is born again. No one is saved. No one is reconciled. All those words, no one has that position or, or standing reinstated with God except through me. Whoa, that's a powerful statement. It is. It is a powerful statement. On that statement hangs all of our beliefs as Christians. Jesus is the only way. If there are other ways too, like some people teach and other, even some people call themselves Christians or the cultural Christians or the progressive Christians, well, you could get through the Buddhists are going to get through Buddha. Well, Buddha's dead. And the Muslims will get through through Muhammad and then Allah. And, uh, well, Muhammad's dead. And all these other people are dead. Jesus Christ is the only one who is resurrected and alive because he's fully God. He is God. He's not a prophet, as some would call him, even when they recognize him as having existed and being a really good man and doing wonderful things, having a great even connection with God. <laughs> it's not enough. That's not enough. They're all dead, and Jesus is not. So God didn't send Jesus to judge the world because the world's already been judged. He goes on to say that he who believes in him, in Jesus, the Son, is not judged, 
But he who does not believe has been judged already, as I've said, because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Now, there are denominations that go off on that word name, and everything's in the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus. Not what that means. The word name there, if you can you look it up and, and, and research it in the Greek, you'll find it means authority or just pointing to the person, meaning Jesus Christ. But believing in the name simply means that we know that Jesus Christ, well, the word Jesus, we're told when the angel appeared to Joseph, said he'll save his people from the sins. He's a savior. Jesus means savior. To save. And then, of course, Christ, Christos, means to, it means the anointed one or Messiah. So the title together, Jesus Christ, the name is recognizing Jesus as the only begotten Son of the Father who came to save us. And the only way, the only way we can be saved is, is stated throughout the rest of the New Testament in the epistles. This is the judgment, Jesus said. And here it is. This is the judgment. We're not judged going to hell because we're all born as sinners. We're judged for this reason. And this, again, this is stated, it's debated, but it's stated clearly in Scripture multiple times. Light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. The light of Jesus, the light of the world came. If you read John 1 in that beautiful um, passage in, uh, to begin this amazing gospel, uh, is, you'll read that again, the light of the world. Jesus now calls himself the light of the world. Their deeds were evil. But everyone who does evil hates the light. Hates the light. Before you were born again in Christ, you didn't like the light. You didn't want your deeds to be exposed. And that's what he says here. They don't come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. In other words, we didn't want, whether it was our deeds or thoughts, those sinful things to be exposed. We've all done things. We've all thought things, said things that we don't want publicized um, all over the net. We don't want it all over them. We don't want it all over Facebook, Twitter, or whatever else, you know, all the different forms of social media. My goodness gracious, today, it's much more scary than it ever was before. Those are people who are already judged, condemned, because they have not believed in the name of Jesus Christ as the only one that could save them. Rather, they love the darkness where they can hide and continue to do what they want to do or do it with other people. They love that rather than the light. But he who practices the truth, practices the truth, comes to the light so that his deeds may, his deeds may be manifested as having been, as having been wrought, wrought, worked out, forged in God. We're going to talk about that next time. That's going to be the primary subject of our text next week. Let me wrap it up with this. Jesus equated being born again with believing and receiving him. In John 1, 12, for as many as received him, okay, that received him, to him he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Okay? Even those who believe in his name. So there's a receiving him and believing him, a combination. And what does that mean? What does that mean to be born again, to receive and believe? To receive means that we take him in. We take him in just like we would a, someone that we welcome into our home. In this case, it's welcome into our heart. That we receive him as the authority, that name, because we believe it. We believe that name, that he is, in fact, Jesus Christ sent from God to save us from our sins. To be that, if you will, that uh, serpent on the pole. To be that man-beaten, bloody, horrifically 
crucified for our sins on the cross. We believe, we receive him, and we believe him. And believe doesn't mean, oh yeah, I believe that that light right there that you can't see is here. Oh, I believe that Jesus was a man. I believe that Jesus was a good man. That has nothing to do with it. That's not what the word means. This word means a more depth of believing that we entrust ourselves to, that we trust him. It's a depth of, of belief, if you will. It's just a deeper meaning, receiving and believing. That, that combination is what is required, and we'll see why next week when we look at how it changes our lives, because Jesus said before he stopped this conversation with Nicodemus, this one who comes to the light, the one who's born again, practices the truth. And if those things are exposed, it's easy to see, it's evidence that, that they were wrought in God, through God, from God. So that's what it means to be born again, and we're going to look at those evidences next week. So let me close and ask you this. It's the one question. This is not a question from Jesus. Now the question from me to you. Jesus didn't pose it as a question, but he was telling Nicodemus very emphatically, you must be born again. And then he said it again. You must be born again. I'm telling you the same thing because Jesus said it to me. He said it to all of us. Walter, you must be born again. And I'm saying to you, whoever you are, man, woman, or child, you must be born again. You must receive and believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. That's believing in the name and that he died for our sins. And he's going to go on to talk about that in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. That we wouldn't perish. It is not God's desire for us to perish. Peter says that later on. It's but you must be born again. And that's what it means. And so the question is, are you? Are you? It's the only question that matters. It's the only thing that I can ask you and teach you that matters. Because if you're not born again, Jesus said, then you're judged and you're condemned and you will spend eternity in hell. You will. That's a promise too. Jesus spoke many, many times about hell, about Satan, demons, and hell. Add all those up. It's more than anything else he talked about in all of his teachings other than possibly the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, as we mentioned today as well. So please, please, uh, if you think you're a Christian, terrific. We're going to look at this next time as we examine our hearts to see that. If you have never received Christ, if you've never asked Jesus to save you, then I'm praying you do that today. That you'd understand what the Holy Spirit spoke through me of these words, His word, <clears throat> And that you would believe and receive Jesus Christ right now today. Father God, I pray that someone, someone has heard this. And it's not from uh, how I've said anything. There are no persuasive words. Uh, as Paul said, it just, just your spirit speaking into the, the spirit of someone's lost heart. That they would look to Jesus. Believe in that name. His power, who He is, the only begotten Son of the one true living God, receive Him as Savior today. Oh, Lord God, would you let that be so? Don't let anyone turn this off, stop listening, stop watching, or stop reading my notes, however they're getting it. Don't let them lay it aside or turn it off. 
before you finish your work in them, just as Jesus Christ finished his work for us on that cross. Let some be saved today for Christ's sake. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. To learn more about how you can become a Christian or grow in your walk with the Lord and receive freely of all the biblically-based content we have created or donate to help keep this ministry going strong, go to onlyjesus.life. That's onlyjesus.life.